Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about a minute. I just want to let you know you're in the right place. Once again, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Preventing and Addressing Sexual Harassment, presented by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's presentation. On behalf of the National Safety Council, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. Well, to start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the magazine or council endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question anytime during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible. We might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Terry Doherty and Judy Kneisel. Terry is an editor on the Human Resources Publishing Team at J.J. Keller. She specializes in information on employment law posters, drug testing, wellness, and the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993. Terry joined J.J. Keller in September 2011 and oversees the editorial content of its employment law poster line. She's also the editor of the Living Right Health and Wellness Awareness Program. Judy's an associate editor on the Human Resources Publishing Team at J.J. Keller. She conducts research and creates content on a variety of HR-related topics, including labor law posters. Judy specializes in issues such as recruitment and hiring, onboarding and training, team building, employee retention, and labor relations. She also edits the Essentials of Employee Relations Manual. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Judy, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Our webcast today is sponsored by J.J. Keller Training. J.J. Keller Training solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, such as training on demand, DVD, streaming video, and video books, all to help you meet your training needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. On behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for our discussion of sexual harassment. We're going to start by talking about where the lines are drawn between employees maybe being rude, employees being offensive, and employees actually harassing one another. We'll also talk about when you should get involved and how you should respond. And I just want to mention that, you know, we've seen a lot of changes in the workplace this past year, year and a half, including the shift to a lot of work from home situations. And while you might assume otherwise, these changes didn't make harassment disappear. Wherever your employees are reporting from, perhaps even more important than reacting to harassment is preventing it in the first place. So we'll talk about how you can do that, including the requirements for training your employees and supervisors. 
You may be surprised to learn that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission published a study not too long ago examining sexual harassment in the workplace. And that study identified some areas in which employers' efforts have been ineffective in preventing harassment in the workplace. So we'll include those findings in our discussion as well. Now we're gonna start off today with a poll for you. We want you to tell us what your primary motivation is for wanting to learn more about the topic of sexual harassment in the workplace. So if you could pick one of the choices on your screen, are you here today because you want to avoid costly litigation? Or maybe you want to reduce the cost of lost productivity and employee turnover caused by sexual harassment. Or maybe you wanna make the workplace a safe and secure place where no one suffers the mental anxiety of being harassed or witnessing harassment. And of course, your last choice is all of the above. Maybe you want to um, learn how to achieve all those things. So we'll give you a few more seconds to vote and tell us what brings you here today. Um, so we'll have some idea of um, where you're starting. Okay, the results are in and just as I sort of anticipated, 64%, um, more than half are here for all of those reasons and 35 want to make your workplace safe and secure, um, which makes sense since we're here with the National Safety Council. Um, and 1% wants to avoid costly litigation. So we can close that poll and move on with our presentation. Thank you so much for participating in that with us. So some of you mentioned, and many employers um, have a main motivation in stopping harassment, and that is to keep legal liability to a minimum, something um, every employer wants to do. Last year, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, who we will mention many times throughout this presentation, they received more than 6,500 charges um, alleging such sexual harassment. And those charges resulted in $65.3 million in monetary penalties for employers. Now that's about a thousand fewer cases than in 2019 and the lowest number in more than a decade. But we're pretty sure that decline had more to do with the temporary effects of the pandemic on the process of filing charges than any sudden improvement in behavior. In fact, there have been reports that sexual harassment stemming from COVID-19 protocols have increased. A one fair wage survey found 43% of female food service workers said that they had received or witnessed unwanted sexual comments specifically re related to COVID-19 protocols, such as masks or physical distancing. And while social distancing may decrease physical harassment, it has increased the potential for inappropriate or even harassing behavior via text, email, video, or video calls for remote employees. Thanks, Judy. And also, I wanted to mention that in addition to concerns over legal liability, you should also be concerned about the effects of sexual harassment on your employees. Victims of sexual harassment report serious negative impacts on their physical and emotional health. The worse the harassment is, the more severe the physical and emotional toll. Victims may suffer anxiety, depression, sleep disturbance, weight loss or gain, loss of appetite, and headaches. Victims also report instances of post-traumatic stress disorder. And in addition, sexual harassment can be financially devastating. Victims may try to avoid harassing behavior by taking leaves of absence, and this is often without pay, or they might use sick leave. They might even quit their jobs out of frustration. 
So it's important to note that when an employee quits due to sexual harassment, it can be considered a constructive discharge, which essentially means that the employee had no choice but to resign and therefore was effectively terminated. But it's not just the victims who suffer. Job turnover, excessive use of sick leave, and lost productivity can all occur when employees are harassed on the job. So you can see how sexual harassment can cost your company, even if you never end up in court. So to help you avoid becoming part of those statistics and to keep you from suffering the negative repercussions in the workplace, the first thing we need to do is solidify the concept of what sexual harassment is. Like any other type of harassment, Sexual harassment is a form of discrimination. Now, for it to be illegal, harassment must be based on an individual's membership in a protected class. And obviously, sexual harassment is harassment based on sex. It can include unwelcome sexual advances or requests for sexual favors. It can certainly be physical, but verbal remarks related to a person's sex could also constitute sexual harassment. Any of these behaviors could be considered sexual harassment if they interfere with an individual's employment or performance to an unreasonable degree, or if they create an intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment. Sexual harassment can really get complicated in the workplace, often because people have different ideas about what's offensive. It's not uncommon for one employee to make what he or she thinks is a harmless joke or to use a cute nickname for someone, but for another employee to be offended. You know, Judy, that reminds me of a case from last year where the main allegation was that a female employee received regular and unwelcome hugs in the workplace, while men were not hugged. Right. And while that case was, you know, before social distancing made hugging anyone even more taboo, it is a great example. In that case, the Ninth Circuit that the The Ninth Circuit ruled that the case could go forward and sent it back to the lower court for trial. The employer in this case argued that the hugs were ordinary workplace socializing, but you can see how something that may not seem terribly offensive to one person could still be problematic. The fact that different people will have different tolerances for offensive behavior probably doesn't surprise you, but this concept makes illegal harassment a little difficult to identify. Some subjectivity is even evident in the law, which wants us to consider how a, quote, reasonable person would feel in a particular situation. Now that we've introduced this reasonable person concept, Terry, I think you're going to talk us through two main types of harassment. Right. I'm glad you brought up that reasonable person concept, Judy, because that does lead us nicely into the two main types of harassment we're going to cover. The reasonable person test Judy mentioned comes into play with the first type of illegal harassment, which is called a hostile work environment. And as you can see on this slide, to establish a hostile work environment, the question is whether that reasonable person would find a particular environment intimidating, hostile, or abusive. There's a little more guidance for the consideration if you look at the beginning of the definition. You also want to think about whether the conduct was severe. If it wasn't severe, it could still be considered a hostile environment if it happened very frequently or if it went on for a long time. The severity or the pervasiveness of the conduct is what would make that reasonable person find the environment to be intimidating, hostile, or abusive. That means that one rude or off-colored sex-based comment probably wouldn't be enough to create a hostile work environment, but if the comments were quite regular, 
you're more likely to be looking at a hostile work environment. As another example, one request for a date from one employee to another would not typically create a hostile work environment, but if the employee continued to ask, even if it's made clear that the original request was unwelcome, then those repeated requests could create or contribute to a hostile work environment. On the other hand, if the conduct is particularly severe, like inappropriate touching, for example, you wouldn't typically need more than one instance for the situation to be deemed a hostile work environment. Now, when determining if a hostile work environment exists, the courts are going to typically consider these factors. So they are things that you should consider too. Obviously, we know that the conduct itself is important, but you'll also want to consider how often it happened, how many people were involved, and the status of the harasser. For instance, if a supervisor was creating a hostile work environment, that addition of the supervisor's status over an employee may more quickly lead to a hostile work environment, basically because of the power dynamic. And then the consideration of whether a reasonable person would consider the environment to be intimidating, hostile, or abusive is also going to depend on the number of people doing the harassing and the number of people being harassed. Carrie, the point you just made about the power dynamic between a supervisor and a subordinate actually moves us nicely into the other type of harassment, which is quid pro quo, because an imbalance of power often comes into play with quid pro quo. Quid pro quo, in addition to be a being a tongue twister, which I might stumble over, um, literally means this for that. Essentially, this would be a situation where someone is required to put up with harassment in order to keep their job or go or to get a promotion. So in such a situation, a harasser is by some means or another saying, you tolerate my behavior or give me something I want and I'll give you X. And here X could be a good review, a promotion, or X could even just be that the person would be allowed to keep their job. This type of harassment may be a little easier to spot than a hostile work environment. As a quid pro quo example, Let's say Mary and her supervisor had been having an affair for three years. When Mary ended the affair, the supervisor demoted her and cut her pay. Or maybe Mary's performance review was unjustly harsh after the affair ended. In either case, Mary might bring a case of sexual harassment against her employer. You can see how a quid pro quo situation typically requires some level of authority from the harasser, and they have to have something to hold over the victim's head for quid pro quo to work. So with this type of harassment, a supervisor is often the harasser. And another example of quid pro quo is this case where the EEOC sued an employer on behalf of 15 female employees. The women claimed that the top executive of the company had harassed them for years, offering job benefits and perks in return for sexual favors. He also threatened them with unfavorable conditions if they rejected him. The plaintiffs were awarded over a million dollars in compensation. This idea of someone in authority asking for something in return for benefits and perks is an important distinction between the two types of harassment. With a hostile work environment, of authority is required, so a harasser could be pretty much anyone, including an employee's peer. The harasser could even be a subordinate or a non-employee, like a customer or contractor. A hostile work environment also doesn't usually involve any kind of tangible employment action while quid pro quo harassment usually does. There's usually some threat of termination, demotion, or some other term of employment involved. 
That's why some people refer to quid pro quo situations as tangible employment action harassment. Before we move on to what you need to do about harassment, I wanted to stop to review some common misperceptions about harassment. First, while harassers are more likely to be male than female, women can be harassers and men can be victims. In fact, in 2019, men filed one in every six sexual harassment claims. So don't write off a situation just because it, just because it isn't a man harassing a woman. Along those same lines, Cherry, harassment need not take place between opposite sex individuals. Men can sexually harass men, women can sexually harass women. For example, say your company has a construction crew and one male employee repeatedly ridicules another male employee for maybe, you know, he thinks he's not masculine enough. We already know that the conduct is based on sex, on stereotypes of how a man should behave. So if the conduct is severe or pervasive enough, you could be looking at a hostile work environment in that situation. Yes, that's a good point. And since we're talking about who must be involved, if I'm using the same example, let's say all this was going on a male employee was making fun of another male employee based on sex. Now, even if that victim doesn't care, say he wasn't offended, there could be another employee who was offended by the comments. An individual doesn't have to be directly harassed to bring a claim of sexual harassment. So that third employee who only witnessed the harassing behavior could still have a claim. As another example, let's say a supervisor carried on a, a consensual relationships with several women in his office. In this case, the women who are not in relationships with the supervisor may have cause for a complaint. Taking it even further, conduct or comments, comments don't have to actually be directed at anyone at all. To give you an example, in a court case from the 11th Circuit, the only female employee in an office had to endure a daily barrage of sexually offensive language in her presence, although not specifically directed at her. She complained to one of her co-workers and to the branch manager, but the offensive language continued Finally, she just quit her job. She couldn't take it anymore. The court found that sex-specific language can be particularly offensive and degrading to a member of a protected class, even if the language isn't specifically directed at that member. That's a quote, that's a quote from the court. The court also stated that the behavior against the female employee was severe and pervasive, so it qualified for a hostile work environment claim of sexual harassment. Okay, so now we've given you some of the basics. So here's another poll for you. And in this poll, we're, we're going to give you a bit of a twist in the form of this poll question. Let's say that Mark and Betty, two of your employees, dated for about three years, but recently broke up. Since then, Mark has been calling Betty regularly during non-work hours to ask her to reconsider and go out on a date with him again. Though Betty has repeatedly turned Mark down and asked him to stop calling, his behavior continued. Betty brings this issue to you because Mark's actions make it uncomfortable for Betty to work with him. We're asking you to put on your, your HR hat, which you were probably already wearing today, and tell us what you would do. Would you do nothing? because the situation did not occur at work. He called her on non-work time, so not your problem. Would you do nothing because the employees used to date, so it can't be harassment? Would you, uh, your third choice, would you transfer Mark to another department, making it you know, more comfortable for Betty to come to work? 
or your last choice, would you investigate this as you would with any other such complaint? So we will give you a couple seconds to get your answer in and then close the poll. And, oh, you guys are doing so great. 95% said investigate as you would any other complaint. Um, 1% would transfer mark. Um, nobody said it's, it's not harassment because they used to date, which is very good. And 4% would do nothing because the situation did not occur at work. All right, we can... Thank you for participating in our poll. Um, I think the 95% of you had it right. Um, investigate as you would any other complaint. We can take the example of Betty and Mark one step further, though, by considering that harassment doesn't even require a verbal exchange. Now that so many people are working remotely, it's important to know that a written exchange could be enough to constitute harassment. And today it's not uncommon for employees to interact online. The situation we described between Mark and Betty could have easily occurred um, over email or social media. Mark could have just sent her a bunch of texts asking her out. Had Mark's unwelcome and repeated request requests reached Betty via Facebook or email, your response should have been very much the same. You should still take Betty's report seriously and investigate the complaint. We'll talk a bit more about um, policies later on in our presentation, but the expectations set forth in your harassment policy should address employees' online conduct. Employees should know that how they interact with coworkers online could become an issue in the workplace. Thanks, Judy. In the examples you gave, Mark and Betty were coworkers. But one thing that's important to note is that courts have found that employers are almost always liable for the acts of their supervisors. Supervisors are representatives of your company, especially when harassment results in a tangible employment action. Let's take a quick look at Burlington versus Ellerth. We're reaching way back to 1998 for this case, but it did set the precedent for cases involving supervisors. First, to understand Ellerth, we'll need to revisit that term constructive discharge. A constructive discharge is when an employee ends up quitting his or her job as a direct result of harassment. The courts have considered constructive discharge to be an instance of tangible employment action. Basically, the employee had no choice but to quit. So the court would consider him or her to be terminated. Now let's look at what happened in this case. Kimberly Ellerth was a female employee who quit after working as a salesperson for 15 months. She endured three incidents of harassment from her supervisor that could be construed to threaten her job, although she was actually promoted once during her tenure. She never reported the harassment, even though the company had procedures for reporting it. Her suit against the company revolved around her quitting because of the harassment or constructive discharge. The question before the court was whether the employer could be held liable if it was never made aware of the supervisor's actions. The case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ultimately ruled that employers are vicariously liable for the actions of their supervisors, even if no tangible employment action is taken against the employee. In simple terms, if the supervisor is the harasser or knows about harassment, then courts will assume that the company knew about it and should have responded. Now, let's talk about the affirmative defense. This defense may, be, may only be used if no tangible employment action was taken against the employee. In order to make this defense, the employer must meet two requirements. First, you must show that you took reasonable care to prevent the harassment in the first place and that you took immediate steps to correct the harassment once you became aware of it. Second, you must show that the employee unreasonably failed to report the harassment, 
Here, you're going to need to be able to show that you had procedures in place for the employee to report harassment and that you would have responded effectively, but the employee failed to take advantage of your procedures. Note that if in the past your company didn't have effective responses to complaints or if it ignored claims, a court is more likely to think it was reasonable that an employee failed to report harassment. Of course, that's bad news for you if you were hoping to employ the affirmative defense. So we said with the affirmative defense, you need to be able to show that you exercise reasonable care and there are fundamental steps you need to take in order to do this. The first is to create a written sexual harassment policy and make sure you distribute it to all employees. This can of course be done via email. Next, train your employees, especially supervisors on your policy and what sexual harassment looks like. Third, make sure you have a procedure in place for employees to report sexual harassment and that employees understand it. Have more than one reporting avenue in case the alleged harasser is ever an employee's direct supervisor. And finally, have all employees sign a statement that they have received the policy and training on sexual harassment and keep that statement on file. It's often easier to understand a concept through examples. So here's an example of a court case in which an employer did everything right. In this case, the victim told her employer about sexual harassment directed toward her. A coworker had made sexual comments and touched her in an offensive manner. The employer promptly investigated the complaint, reprimanded the harasser, placed him on probation, and warned him about serious consequences for further misconduct. A second coworker who had witnessed the harassment was reprimanded for not intervening on the victim's behalf and for not reporting the conduct. The court ruled that this employer's response was immediate and appropriate and found the employer not liable for the harassment. The employer in that case responded appropriately so now let's look let's talk about one who didn't in this case the victim worked in a secluded part of a building with a supervisor who harassed her her supervisor knew she needed her job her daughter had cancer so she needed insurance and she was afraid of reporting the harassment and losing her job she was also aware that the supervisor had been unsuccessfully reprimanded after complaints from other employees, so she didn't think reporting would help. The harassment went on for years. The employer did have an anti-harassment policy, and the harasser was ultimately fired for violating it. Do you think the employer was in the wrong? In this case, the harassment went on for years, so it was definitely pervasive because the victim had a well-founded belief that she would be retaliated against if she reported the harassment, so it was reasonable. But the victim didn't, but if the victim doesn't report, is the employer responsible? The judge pointed out that in many cases that have emerged during the Me Too movement, a person in a position of power has exploited authority to make unwanted sexual advances. The victims were afraid of serious adverse consequences if they spoke out. While in the past, the burden has been on the victim to report harassment, today, courts are asking, why a victim might not report it. A jury could find it understandable or even reasonable for an employee to fear retaliation. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, you not only have to include information in your policy <clears throat> on how to report harassment, you should <clears throat> make sure that the victim is not afraid to report it. That's right, Judy. If, if a supervisor hears something, but the victim is hesitant to report it, you need to ask why, because that is what a court is going to do. Right. <clears throat> that should give us a good foundation 
on recognizing harassment that affects the workplace. And Terry just got started. It just started getting us into what you can do to minimize your liability by having certain policies and processes in place. So now let's say you do recognize sexual harassment in your workplace. Again, your company isn't automatically liable, but if you don't do anything about it, your chances of legal liability rise significantly. Basically, the law says that employers are responsible for sexual harassment they know about or should have known about. And if you're a, and you're a step ahead, if you understand the concepts and can recognize sexual harassment when it occurs. From there, you have to know how to respond. And of course, your supervisors have to know how to respond. So, if you become aware of a possible hostile work environment or a quid pro quo situation, you should immediately conduct an investigation. As part of your investigation, get answers to the following questions that you see on your screen. What was the nature of the conduct? Was it verbal, physical, or both? Did the victim indicate that it was unwelcome? How severe was it? How frequently did it occur? Was it physically threatening? Was it humiliating? Did it interfere with the employee's work performance? Would a reasonable person consider the behavior offensive? Were there any witnesses? Or would anyone else have information? And by anyone else, I mean maybe the victim talked to a coworker about the harassment or that person, and that person could offer a statement that supports the victim's story. Make sure you document the situation. Even if you conclude that no illegal harassment occurred, and even if the case of a very, is a very minor infraction that doesn't require formal discipline, documenting everything can help you identify patterns down the road. Remember, Something that didn't create a hostile work environment at first could contribute to one if similar conduct continues. So having that history, having that documentation will be very helpful. Now, if your investigation determines that harassment has occurred, the next step is deciding how to correct the situation. First, you need to stop the harassment and stabilize the workplace. Any discipline should be proportional to the seriousness of the offense and effective at putting an end to the behavior. So for example, if you have an employee who makes a tasteless joke, a verbal warning may be enough. On the other hand, if an employee has inappropriately touched a coworker, something much more seriously, perhaps a suspension or even termination may be in order. Keep in mind that you could still be liable if the harassment doesn't stop. That means that after you conduct an investigation, you'll need to continue monitoring the situation. If the conduct doesn't stop, for instance, if the jokester keeps telling inappropriate jokes, the discipline needs to be progressively more serious since the first round wasn't effective at stopping the harassment. Thanks for that, Terry. Yeah, you have to remember that the situation doesn't end just because you've completed your investigation. The other two, the other thing to keep in mind is that if your investigation uncovers that illegal harassment has occurred, you'll want to correct any effects on the victim. For example, if the individual was demoted after refusing sexual advances from a supervisor, that victim should probably be restored to their previous position. Or say an employee was required to take leave after complaining of harassment, they should have that leave immediately restored at the conclusion of the investigation that supports 
they, um, the allegations. How we just explained addressing sexual harassment is probably how you're used to hearing about it. Watch for harassment, and when you think it might be present, investigate immediately and act on your feelings. We stand by this advice. You should absolutely respond to harassing behavior in your workplace with an investigation and whatever discipline you deem appropriate after determining what happened. But there's one pretty major problem. This approach, taken alone, is way too reactive and not proactive enough. A few years ago, the EEOC had a commission, um, a commission task force uh, to study harassment in the workplace, and they concluded that many employers aren't really looking at harassment in the right way because they are waiting to address conduct um, until it crosses over into behavior that is actually illegal. Well, you should absolutely step in when you identify harassing behavior in the legal sense of the word. Your efforts should actually start well before that. Employees should know that uncivil or offensive behavior, even well before the point that the conflict ventures into the world of sexual harassment, is not acceptable in the workplace. Many employers have expressed concern that some workplace banter may come close to crossing the line into the realm of unlawful conduct. And we acknowledged earlier that this can be a fine line, sometimes laced with subjectivity. The difficulty of determining when exactly offensive behavior becomes unlawful is yet another reason that it's important to take all complaints seriously and require professional behavior from employees. Also, if you're in the habit of not addressing offensive conduct, you might be creating the impression that such behavior is acceptable in the workplace. After all, it isn't being stopped. You can see how such behaviors can kind of gain momentum, possibly leading to actual harassment in the future. It all comes down to prevention. Teach your employees how to be helpful bystanders and respond to sexual harassment quickly and appropriately. In fact, JJ Keller offers a unique training on sexual harassment. This program can be easily customized to meet state requirements and is available on DVD, video training book, an online course, and in pay-per-view. Now we're going to ask you to go ahead and choose in this poll um, which which form of this training you would be most interested in. And if you do make that selection, you will get a free white paper. And the white paper is our brand new white paper. And it's called Sexual Harassment, Three Tips for Effective Training. Now you can choose our, uh, which would you be more interested in, interactive uh, tra record keeping, training record keeping. Um, are you interested in more classroom streaming video training? Are you interested in more reporting, um, auditing, and how to analyze your train pro training program? Go ahead and indicate which subject you are most interested in, and then you'll get the free sexual harassment training tips. And it is important to note that our training does meet the state requirements. I know Judy does get a lot of questions on that. And yes, it, when you add those interactive components, it does meet the state requirements. Okay, now let's, speaking of training, let's talk about how important training is. Oh, and there's a nice picture of our white paper. Nice job on that, Judy. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, now the EEOC's EEOC's task force indicated that preventing sexual harassment rather than just responding to it is the ultimate goal. And doing that requires a total shift in a company's culture coming from the top down. One tactic that the task force offered as a possible benefit to employers is civility training. This type of training is meant to promote respect between employees. Civility training is not focused specifically on harassment prevention, but rather on creating a more respectful, envir respectful 
environment overall, which should lead to less conflict and fewer incidents of harassment in the workplace. Research has shown that incivility is typically a precursor to harassment. Now, in contrast to typical anti-harassment training, civility training tends to give people positive examples of how to behave rather than highlighting the behaviors that they should avoid. The training typically includes a focus on interpersonal communication, conflict resolution, and effective supervisory techniques. Now we'll talk a little bit about bystander training, which is another avenue suggested by the EEOC task force. This is a violence prevention strategy. As the name implies, bystander intervention training encourages people who witness potentially harassing situations to step in and defuse them. Bystander intervention training is being used more and more in colleges and high schools to prevent violence and sexual assault. The concept involves at least four strategies. The first is to help bystanders recognize potentially problematic behaviors, thereby creating awareness. It also creates a sense of collective responsibility by motivating bystanders to step in and take action when they observe problematic behaviors. It can also empower bystanders by building, building their skills and giving them the confidence necessary to intervene as appropriate. And fourth, it provides bystanders with resources they can call upon and that support their intervention. Thanks, Cherry. These two types of training recommended by the EEOC's task force are not necessarily substitutes for specific sexual harassment prevention training, though. Remember, Bystander intervention training and civility training aren't subject specific. They're more about teaching employees how to behave in general, which can ultimately prevent harassment. Still, employees do need to understand what kinds of behaviors are and are not allowed specific to sexual harassment. And in a few states, um, listed on your screen there, training specific to sexual harassment is actually required by law. And while these laws vary, vary slightly from state to state, from a general standpoint, they require employers to review the federal and state provisions prohibiting sexual harassment to, to distinguish it from other types of harassment and to provide examples of sexual harassment and how to prevent it. And these states generally require training to include specifics on how to report sexual harassment. So if you're not in one of those six states, sexual harassment training may not be required, but of course that does not mean you should skip it. The EEOC task force noted that individuals who receive training are more likely to tell their employers about harassment. Training should do many of the things that those states mentioned require of employers. Don't panic if you didn't catch the elements we just listed. We're going to slow down and go over each of them specifically and how you can present them in your training. One of the most important elements of training is to communicate your company's position on harassment in the workplace. You want to make sure that all employees understand that your company strongly disapproves of this type of conduct. And of course, it's best if this stance is reflected from the top down in your company's culture. You'll also want to let employees know what the consequences could be, depending on the severity of the conduct. Terry, you and I were just talking about the advisability of zero tolerance policies, and I think we agree that they might not be the best idea. Yeah, I do think we see eye to eye on that topic. A lot of companies do elect to communicate zero tolerance policies on things like workplace violence and sexual harassment. 
but the EEOC's task force has concerns that such a communication might actually discourage employees from reporting behavior. The task force says that employees may interpret such a policy to mean that any offenders could be treated equally harshly, regardless of the seriousness of the offense. If an employee believes that a coworker's crude joke might get him or her fired rather than simply reprimanded or reminded of a policy, the employee is less likely to report it, which gives your company less of an opportunity to step in before conduct rises to the level of an of illegal harassment. Yes, that's definitely something to consider if zero tolerance has been your strategy. It's not that you should allow offensive conduct and harassment, but you wanna be careful how you explain your position. Back to the contents of your training. Another element is obviously going to be an explanation of what sexual harassment is. State and federal definitions regarding sexual harassment are fundamental, but they have to be coupled with careful explanations and examples. And those, those examples have to be relevant. They should be situations that may actually occur, occur in your workplace. We talked about the EEOC's suggestions of conducting preventative type trainings, such as bystander intervention and civility training. So you already know that it's good to put effort towards stopping offensive behavior before it ventures into illegal harassment territory. That also means you don't want to wait around and act only on situations in the workplace that actually rise to the level of illegal harassment. And you don't want to train employees only to help them avoid harassment. Think about all the inappropriate behaviors you wish to prohibit and provide examples of those in your training to illustrate what is unacceptable. But be clear that no matter how innocent something may have been intended to be, it can still be inappropriate and unacceptable in the workplace. It matters as much, if not more, at how behavior is received compared to how it is intended. Again, examples are key here. It shouldn't be difficult to come up with examples of something that could happen in your workplace that might offend one person, but not another. Training should also outline your reporting procedure if an individual is a victim or a witness to sexual harassment in case the harasser is an employee's direct supervisor, and we've hinted at this already, but it bears repeating, training should outline multiple points of contact for employees to report harassment. To fail to do so may give an employee a defense for not reporting harassment, which is obviously something you don't want. Throughout your training, employees should be reminded that the company takes allegations seriously and that employees will not experience retaliation for make, making a complaint. They should also understand that the employer will keep the information surrounding sexual harassment as confidential as possible, while acknowledging that there may be situations in which total confidentiality is not possible. If you conduct separate training for managers and supervisors, which is something we would definitely recommend, a key component is that they understand how to receive and proceed with sexual harassment complaints. First, supervisors must know how serious it is that they handle harassment complaints efficiently, in part because if they don't, your company can be on the hook if it knew about sexual harassment in the workplace but didn't address it. Second, they need to understand how to treat employees with respect throughout the complaint process and provide confidentiality where possible. Role-playing exercises on things like receiving a complaint, interviewing victims and witnesses, and implementing discipline and outlining future expectations can be really helpful for supervisors. Just giving them examples of language to use and to avoid can give supervisors a leg up in handling such a situation appropriately and effectively. 
Your supervisor's success in handling these complaints is a really big deal. One mishandled situation and your employees will be less likely to report what they experience and witness in the future, which again, leaves you less able to address situations before they escalate into illegal harassment. Another paramount piece of training for supervisors is understanding the concept of retaliation and being conscious of even the perception of it. In a nutshell, retaliation charges assert that an employer took action against an employee in some way for making or supporting a, a claim of discrimination. In 2020, 55% of charges made with the EEOC included an element of retaliation. And remember, even if you handle a sexual harassment charge properly and you limit your liability in that area, if a supervisor retaliates against an employee for reporting sexual harassment, your liability starts all over again. Retaliation is a risk, even if an employee's report of sexual harassment didn't rise to the level of being illegal. Examples within your training for supervisors can be really helpful. A lot of times, supervisors don't realize the kind of behaviors they might be exhibiting that could be perceived as retaliation. Excluding an employee or treating someone differently because they're a troublemaker or even labeling someone as, a, as sensitive can be the beginnings of a retaliation claim under the right circumstances. Now, supervisors need to understand that any employment action taken after an employee complains of harassment could potentially form the basis for a retaliation claim. So it's tricky and you have to watch for the possible perception of retaliation. But in good news for employers, Employees who report harassment are not immune to legitimate discipline. And here's a case for an example. In a, a female employee named Karen Casper was harassed by her manager. The manager noted that Casper's work was unsatisfactory and reported to this to his supervisor. Casper then reported the harassment and the manager was disciplined. Now, months later, Casper had a meeting to discuss her performance at which time she stated she was being retaliated against. As a result, Casper was assigned to a new supervisor, and this time a woman. When the new supervisor indicated there were areas for improvement, Casper threatened, required, threatened a lawsuit. At her next performance review, the new supervisor placed Casper on a performance improvement plan, and Casper was eventually terminated. Casper sued saying she had been fired for reporting harassment. However, the courts found no basis for the claim. With the documentation the company had regarding her performance, Casper could not prove that her termination was, was the result of discrimination and not due to her unsatisfactory performance. Retaliation is obviously something you need your supervisors to understand and to communicate to employees. The EEOC says only one in four cases of workplace harassment are reported, and that is likely because employees fear retaliation. Most Importantly, employees have to feel respected in the workplace for your prevention efforts to work. The EEOC task force found a direct correlation between the respect given to employees and the employer's ability to identify and stop harassment. Unfortunately, it's really, really easy to undermine that respect. And it only takes one employee being treated poorly in conjunction with reporting sexual harassment or offensive behavior, because once that gets around, the next employee and the next and the next may not report anything at all. And then you don't have a chance to stop harassment at its roots. And you can see how training can't be approached as a rote exercise in to be an effective component of sexual harassment prevention. It has to be one component in a whole culture 
um, to make sure all employees are treated with respect. But one way you can make sure your training is effective is to have your employees evaluated. You can do this immediately after, but you might also want to try asking a few months after training. And then you can ask if empo what employees remember and what they're not clear about. And you can ask them if they've noticed behaviors have changed in the workplace since the training. And if you find they're not if they're if you find they're noticing more negative behavior now, then you need to change your your training. All this feedback can help you determine where you might want to tweak your training and whether you might need to start thinking about a refresher course down the road. Now, we mentioned the importance of a strong sexual harassment policy throughout our presentation. And here are the elements that should be included. Your policy should include possible consequences for being a harasser, a clear definition of sexual harassment or other prohibited behaviors, and a statement that retaliation won't be tolerated. In addition, it should encourage employees or even communicate that it's ex an expectation that they report any sexual harassment and or offensive behavior that they witness or experience. Remember, a policy won't be affected if it, can't, if it can't be understood by everyone in your workforce. Consider whether you may, to provide, may need to provide copies of your policy um, and your, any required sexual harassment posters in other languages. And this may go for your training as well, depending on what type of language barriers you and your employees may be facing. So that's really the nuts and bolts of how not to ignore sexual harassment, which is really, really important. I don't think we need to give you specific examples when we say that today's culture is filled with sexual harassing behavior. Preventing harassment of any kind in the workplace is one of those things where you really have to do the work of creating a positive culture. And when that doesn't work, be willing to have uncomfortable conversations when situations merit them. In a rather famous presentation made by Netflix a couple of years ago, the company points out that lots of companies have nice sounding value statements, but that's not the hard part. The presentation pointed out that Enron had integrity, communication, respect, and excellence as company values, and yet they still went bankrupt due to fraud. What's really valued at a company, or the actual company values, are the ones you're willing to act on, which are shown by who gets rewarded, promoted, or let go. If you focus on doing the tough work to create the culture you want, highlighting actual values, you will have a lot more of that prevention we've been talking about, which will require less attention to avoiding legal liability in the long run. We know we've covered a ton of ground here today and we hope you found it helpful. Um, we, we really have run out of time for questions, but we'd like to give you another opportunity to request more information on our training solutions, whether you're looking for training topics on sexual harassment um, or many of them, the, the JJ Keller training delivers. We have hundreds of online training courses and pay-per-view streaming videos. And there you will see another um, poll on your screen, which we would ask you to participate in. And today, when you inquire about JJ Keller training, we will email you a digital copy of our brand new white paper on sexual harassment training. So please participate in our poll and we will send you that white paper. I think you will appreciate it. It, it kind of reiterates what we've been saying today. Thank you for every, to everyone who joined us today. 
For those who are looking for more information on our JJ Keller Training Solutions, please allow up to 48 hours to receive your complimentary white paper. And if you miss the opportunity, let us know in the post-event survey and also let us know how we did. Thanks, Terry, and thanks to everyone else who joined us today. And please have a safe day. All right, thank you both. I really appreciate it. I uh, want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. And I want to thank everyone. And unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, I'm, any unanswered questions that we got will be forwarded to today's responder as a reminder. Again, we also hope you take the time to fill out, to share your feedback through our survey. Uh, this ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I think Terry Doherty, Judy Knizel, our sponsor, JJ Keller, and of course, everyone who joined us today. I'll also say take care and be safe.